told that David and Christina had their baby uh, this last week, and they had to stay in for a little while. Yeah, kids, off the Bible's floors. <laughs> sure moms and dads were that excited to hear me preach this morning. But uh, pray for them as they uh, have their new baby and uh, get everything uh, situated with that. It's always an exciting time. But uh, John chapter 10. Now, so far in John chapter 10, we have divided this chapter into three sections. And I've told you that, that that's the best way to, to really break something down into your Bible. Uh, sometimes you can use the paragraph marks to do it. Sometimes you can just use the, uh, the flow of conversation to do it. Uh, sometimes if you can see it, you know where it switches from the doctrinal into the uh, you know, into the inspirational, and you, you can do it that way when it changes subjects. But that is what we have done. And so far, as I said, we've broken it down into three sections. And my goal is to uh, give you a complete uh, understanding of this chapter and, and everything that's going on here. When you get into the Gospels, uh, nothing is at face value. Everything there is for a reason. Christ's coming, you know, we look at it as our Savior dying on the cross, and that certainly is true. But the bigger picture is Him coming to the nation of Israel. Most people never see that. Most people don't see that the controversy that in, in, it swirls around Him uh, is because of the rejection that takes place in Matthew chapter 12. Most people never see that. So we have broken this down to give you as much of an understanding of it as I can give you. And uh, briefly, you know, just as a quick recap, we, we first off by looked at verses 1 through 6, and we talked about the parable of the Good Shepherd. And uh, it's a story about Christ coming down to this earth from heaven uh, to the nation of Israel at the first coming of Christ. And the key word there, and we spent some time with this, was the word door. Uh, and I showed you how that up in the second heaven, there's actually doors and windows that uh, are actually there. And uh, I laid it out doctrinally how that this story is about the first coming of Christ and God calling the Old Testament saints out of Abraham's bosom. And this is all connected in this, in this great, great story, this parable. And uh, we saw the stranger show up. And then I showed you how it jumps from the first coming of Christ right over the church age into the tribulation period, right smack dab with the Antichrist. And as I've said, trying to keep before you, all this doctrinally is dealing with Israel at the first coming of Christ and then go straight into the tribulation and then into the second coming, showing you, you know, what God is trying to do to the nation of Israel. And I explained to you what the parables were, how that in Matthew chapter 12, they rejected Christ. They equated the spirit by which he was doing the miracles with the spirit of Beelzebub, that's the devil. And at that point, when they make their official rejection, the kingdom of heaven now goes into a mystery form, and I gave you all the verses on that, uh, which are called parables. Then the second week, we looked at verses 6 through 15, and in this section, I showed you how Christ made uh, the practical application to himself as the door. Even though he's not the door of verse 1, he's now using it to show that he is the only way that Israel can get of the salvation. And he goes here from the tribulation into the millennial reign of Christ, the pastor. We looked at all the verses on that, verse 9. And uh, we saw how that all worked. I, we defined the hireling for you in that particular week. 
uh, as the religious leaders of Israel that cared nothing about the nation of Israel, that were in it for their own power, for the money they could make, for their own situation, and cared nothing for the sheep, the nation of Israel. And, uh, you know, and then I showed you how that the uh, aspect of leaven. Leaven is false doctrine. And the Bible tells us that told the nation of Israel that they were to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And I showed you, and I, then I took the, the application to your world and my world, how some things never change. And just as the nation of Israel, and you're going to see this in a, in a minute, just as the nation of Israel uh, had their false leaders that claimed to be of God, but weren't, had taken the word of God from them, had taken everything that God had given them, and yet they had a form of godliness, but it was empty as a, you know, uh, without any power in it. I made the application to that's what we have today in the Laodicean church age. Pastors, mega churches out there that all they care about is what they can get from you. All they care about is what you can do for them. There's no spiritual insight into trying to give you, to help you, to be there for you and what you need. And certainly uh, the leaven is, uh, is uh, all through the Laodicean church period today. Then last week, we got into verse 16 through 30, and we saw the references there to the other sheep. And I told you that doctrinally, that'll be the 144,000 going out to evangelize the Gentiles in the tribulation period. Inspirationally, once Acts chapter 7 uh, gets rejected, the final rejection, then spiritually it, it's talking about the church age, uh, us being in one body. And all of this showing you that it's all to the nation of Israel, uh, primarily. Directly, this is everything in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it directly is going to be to the state of the nation of Israel at the first coming of Christ. We talked about sound doctrine, how that doctrine is the number one thing that the Bible is built on. And I took you back last week to Ezekiel chapter 34, a passage in the Old Testament, and completely validated and showed you everything that we have been looking at in John chapter 10, because it's all directed to the nation of Israel. And tied it all together for you about the shepherd, and the sheep, the leaders of the nation of Israel and the nation of Israel themselves. And we saw in each one of these a better understanding of what really is going on at the first coming of Christ. And through all of this, we see, uh, you know, the bigger picture. And I, you need to know, wherever you go in the Bible, whatever you're reading, I don't care whatever book you're reading, I don't care whatever story you're reading, I don't care if it's a character study about somebody in the Bible, face value is going to be some great material, but I'm telling you right now, there's always a bigger picture. You have to be able to go beyond the sur uh, underneath the surface and see what God is really doing. And uh, we saw now how that God running all this through the Old Testament up into the New Testament into the second coming and then on into the millennium. You know, God's, God's ultimate plan, God's ultimate plan to reach the world, that was his original plan. All the way back in Genesis 1-1 when it starts unfolding, if you look the bigger picture, you see that God wanted his creation to be part of his government, part of his kingdom. And God's ultimate plan to reach the world with his truth, and then we see that the devil, 
he steps in to try to stop that plan. He'll do it a number of different ways. We've talked about it many, many times. But, you know, establishing the kingdom of heaven through the nation of Israel in the Old Testament for all mankind, all of God's creation to be part of God's plan, God's government, God's structure, which was and still is his original plan. Sometimes because we live in the 20th 21st century now, and uh, we, uh, you know, we, we, we see things around us and how different it is and all the different things that change between Bible times and today. We fall into the trap that we think that it's actually different. It's not. Don't ever get sidetracked by the bells and the whistles of life and all the things that man comes up with. God's fundamental plan is still God's fundamental plan. And he is right on track to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And we know that a, a real historical picture uh, of all history can only be found in the Word of God as it applies to history. And I've told you this many, many times. You cannot separate the two. You can't take and put history over here and the Bible over here. Because Gentiles have the idea that history and the Bible is about what man is doing. And that's not true. History in the Bible, from God's standpoint, is what God's doing. That's the big picture you need to see. And you'll see this laid out in the uh, picture of, of all the way through the Bible. You know, Thursday night, someone asked a question about the books of the Bible, and I showed you how that, by the order of the books in the Bible, God shows you His plan. And we know that the coming of Christ is now is the premillennial return of Christ. He comes back first before he establishes the millennium. That's mostly unaccepted today, and nobody believes that anymore. But that's the Bible teaching on it, and that has stood in the church for the last 2,000 years. And I showed you how that from Second Chronicles 36 right up into the book of Proverbs, Everything is an orderly fashion that shows you God's plan. Now, that's the big picture. But you see that all the way through the Bible. We have talked about the, we have talked about the, the Antichrist. We've talked about the second coming of Christ. We've talked about the millennial reign of Christ. We're talking about it a lot because it's major doctrines of the Bible. But you can go back in the Old Testament, and just like the books of the Bible show you the premillennial return, so do many times the character studies you'll take in the Bible. You take, for instance, three kings that Israel had. The first king, the second king, and the third king. The first king was Saul. Saul was not God's choice. And you'll find the bulk of information about him in 1 Samuel chapter 13. Saul was not God's choice. Saul was the people's choice. And the people didn't want a God, a king that God would give them. They wanted a king like all the other nations. The prophet Samuel told them, hey, you're not supposed to be like the other nations. They said, we don't care. We want a king like all the other nations. And they got Saul. Saul was one of the 18 types of the Antichrist in the Old Testament. When you study his life and you study what he does, when you study how he treats the nation of Israel, it's a perfect picture of the man of sin when he shows up. Now watch this. When he shows up to take over the world to destroy the nation of Israel. Saul was the first king. The second king Israel had was David, wasn't it? And David is the warrior king. 
David was not allowed to build the temple, remember? People think, well, David wasn't allowed to build a temple for this or for that. No, David was not allowed to build a temple because David is a type of Christ at the second coming of Christ. After the Antichrist. Where Saul was a type of the Antichrist, David, what does he do? He wipes out all the rest of the nations that are against the nation of Israel in his 40 years. Saul reigns for 40 years. David reigns for 40 years. And at the end of those 40 years, David, the warrior king, has destroyed all of the nations that Saul made an alliance with, just like the Antichrist is going to do. And, 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 and David comes in in 1 Samuel chapter 16. He's anointed king in 2 Samuel chapter 2. And it's a thing where, so you have Saul, a type of the Antichrist in the tribulation, David, a type of Christ that... His 40 years wipes out all the nations. And every battle in David's kingdom and his life will be a picture of a battle of the second coming of Christ. Then what do you have? Who's the third king? Solomon. You know, after David wipes out all the nations, there's no more enemies to the nation of Israel. When Solomon reigns for 40 years, it's a picture of the millennial reign of Christ. No wars. Everything's at peace. You see, you have by those three men, it's all through your Bible like this. But here in particular, you have Saul, type of the Antichrist, David, type of Christ at the second coming. Solomon comes in and the land's at rest and for 40 years. And this is such a picture. This is where in 1 Kings chapter 10, uh, uh, you know, the Queen of Sheba comes in. And it's a picture of the Gentile nations coming into Jerusalem in the millennium. They're looking at all the glory of God that Solomon has displayed. The Bible says that all the known nations of the world are coming into Jerusalem. You see, you don't get that in school. You don't get that in in college. You'll never get that in high school because Gentiles want to put the Jew completely out of the picture. There was a time in his 40 years when it's the only time in Israel's history, it was a short period of time, where the kingdom of heaven is established. For 40 years. And it's an incredible time to be able to see those three kings and what they represent. I've had people ask me, show you how the Bible works, how beautiful it is. I've had people ask me, well, you know, why did God allow Saul first and then David second? I know the doctrinal thing, Antichrist in the second, but what's the practical application? Well, here again, this is where the Bible's unsearchable. The practical application is Saul was the first king. David was the second king. In your Bible, it's never the first birth that ever gets you anywhere. It's the second birth. You must be born again. You see the picture in there? Your Bible's incredible. Your Bible's incredible. And of course, uh, you know, and I, I showed you how that the, you know, uh, what an incredible Bible, you know, that you have. And I showed you how that these first three kings, just like the books that I gave you Thursday night, all point you to the greatest doctrine of the Bible, which is the second coming of Christ. And that's what we've got in John chapter 10. I've showed you how many times over the years, you know, how that the devil uses nations. And I've given you the two greatest chapters in the Old Testament on the devil at work will be Job chapter 40 and Job chapter 41. The two greatest chapters in the New Testament, Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 13. But in Job chapter 40 and 41, uh, you, you have now 
and I've laid it out many times how he operates through nations. It's in Job chapter 41, verse 12, where the Bible says, God tells you and me, I will not conceal his parts, nor his power, nor his comely proportion. And I've told you before, when the Bible says that God will not conceal his parts, that's the men that he uses down through history to stop the plan of God. That'll be the Sadducees and the Pharisees in John chapter 10. It'll be all the other nations that we find in the Bible that tried to stop them. And then he says, nor his power. That'll be the nations. The devil stays in power in the Old Testament through nations. In the New Testament, it changes. And he stays in power through religion. But that's another message for another day. And then it says, nor will I conceal his comely proportion. Now, there's his religion. And it's, it's, it's through the nations. And those nations are listed for you in the Bible. It starts out in Genesis with Egypt. And then it goes into the Philistines, and then the Hittites, and the Moabites, and the Amorites, and the Amalekites, and the Jebusites, and the Hittites, and, and the Amalekites, and all of those nations. And then when you get into Daniel chapter 2, as the world expands, he expands. And he runs the world through Assyria. Then he runs the world through Babylon. Then he runs the world through Persia. Then he runs the world through Greece. Then he runs the world through Rome. And when Christ shows up at the first coming of Christ, right where we're at in John chapter 10, he's got the world through Rome. And now he's positioned himself in Rome, in Jerusalem. Just as God brought the Jew back, like I showed you last week in Ezra and Nehemiah, to establish that kingdom for the first coming of Christ. The devil didn't miss that. He got Rome, and Rome now is in charge of Jerusalem. And you know from Matthew chapter 2 and all through the early thing, Rome was in power for one reason through the Caesars, to kill Christ. They knew the Old Testament prophecies. They wanted the wise men to show them where he was born. Why? They knew what the Bible said. Hey, there is an alliance between the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees who knew their Old Testament with Rome. And the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't want to lose their job to this king of the Jews. That's how Herod knew. That's where he knew where to look. And of course, God's hand all through this. Now see, that's the big picture. And (laughs) if you want to go a little bit farther, we go into Daniel chapter 7, and you see the kingdoms then, as it plays out, you see England, Russia, that good old United States of America. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where it's incredible. All are the powers that he uses against God down through history to stop him. And I've told you many, many times. When Rome comes into power, 100 AD, she never loses power. She just changes garments around 325 AD and goes from a political system to a religious system. And on we go. And here we are today. Here we are today. So today, with all that in hand, and I hope you got big hands because here we go. Let's look at our last section out of this chapter as we close it out. Let's look at John chapter 10, verses 30. We're going to pick it up in 30. And then 31 down through the end of the chapter in verse 42. Now let me read it for you. 
I and my father are one. We read that one last week. We ended on that one last week, by the way, but I wanted to start. I and my father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, many good works have I showed you from my father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for the blasphemy. And because thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, Ye are gods. If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him who the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemous? Because I said, I am the Son of God. For if I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, through the ye believe not me, believe the works, that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me, and I in him. Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand. And he went away again beyond Jordan, unto the place where John had first baptized, and there he abode. And many resorted unto him, and said, John did no, uh, did no miracle, but all the things that John spake of this man were true. And many believed on him there. Father, help us today to uh, see what's going on here. I've tried my best to give them the best appreciation of this chapter that I could. I've tried with everything in my ability to lay it out as cleanly and clearly and understandably that these good people could uh, have a better understanding of you and the Word of God and what the Word of God means to them and how to rightly divide it. And I pray now, Father, that you'll bless us today. Open up our hearts, open up our minds, open up our eyes. Put us under the blood this morning. Forgive us where we have transgressed your law and sinned against you, Father, and help us to be clean that we might receive all that you have for us. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, I want you to note a couple of things here. The first thing I want you to note that here again, he divides them. The key to understanding God in Christ is that that's what he does. The world thinks that he came to put everybody together. You know, the liberals think that, the Methodists think that, the Catholics think that, most Baptists think that, the neo-evangelicals, they don't know what they'll think. But the bottom line is everybody today thinks that Jesus came to put everybody together. That's not true. He tells you very clearly that he didn't come to put together. He came to divide. You know what? The way you got saved is he divided you from the world. The way you got saved, he divided your soul from your flesh. The way after you get saved, that you're to be separate, divided from the world. You see, God can't put anything together till he divides. So it's no no great mystery to me that when he comes to the nation of Israel... There are some things that need to be divided, and then God will put them together. Now, I want to make some comments on this passage in a few moments. I think, personally, the closing of this chapter, closing it out, he gives us one of the greatest unknown or at least forgotten truths that the body of Christ will ever get. For me, and I can't speak for you, but for me, when I read this last section... It seals the deal for me uh, with a lot of so-called Christians. We live in a world today where everybody's a Christian. We live in a world today where in most churches everybody claims to love God even when they have the devil's Bible. 
We live in a world today where God's people have no understanding of God. They have no, they're doing nothing for God. They care nothing about the things of God. And yet, we're supposed to be okay that that's what a Christian's supposed to do. You know the thing that bothers me about Christianity today? Honest to goodness, I can't find in anywhere in the Bible a Christian that is like most of the Christians that we see today. I don't find any halfway Christians in the New Testament. They're either in or they're out. Where did this idea that there's this twilight zone that we can get saved and then not give our lives to God or not be everything God wants us to be? You didn't get that from the Bible. Well, we'll talk about that here in just a little bit. But I tell you, we're living in the great apostasy, the falling away. And we've talked about this many, many times. The longer I go, the less I want to waste my time with people who just want to waste God's time. There comes a thing where if we don't have a lot of time left, I can't, I don't know when God's coming back. Uh, it may be tomorrow. It may be in the next 30, 30 years. I don't know. But I know we don't have a long time left. But I'm telling you, I'm 71 years old and I don't have a lot of time left. I mean, if God comes back in 40 years, I'm cooked. You'll plant me like you did your rose garden in your backyard. I mean, it'll be a thing where, and that's true of so many of us. But you know what? The older you get, the older I get, the more I see the urgency of where God's plan is, the less time I want to waste with people that don't give a flip. You want to learn the Bible? You want to be everything God wants you to be? I will give you every drop that I've got. I'll give you everything I know. I'll spend whatever time it takes. But if you want to waste God's time, don't waste my time because of the urgency of the hour. But before I get into this and make these comments on this verse, which I think is, (laughs) for me, it's a great thing. Let's go back for a moment and get the rest of what we need. We've got a lot about the big picture, but I want to give you another dimension of the big picture. I want my people as dialed into the Word of God and as prepped into the Word of God in any situation in life. I want you in time to see the big picture of God in everything. I don't want you to be a nominal average Christian. I want you to be better than that. You know why? Because you should be better than that. And you know why? Because you are better than that. Hey, if you're truly saved this morning, you're the aristocracy of heaven. God came down and died. God came down and paid that price for you. He didn't do it so you could be of non-effect. He didn't do it so you could just be lackadaisical in your attitude. He didn't do it so you could grab his salvation like a fire exit and then just do your own thing. He did it to change your life that through your changed life you could change somebody else's life. Well, (laughs) forgive me. I'm getting ahead of myself here. My second senior moment. I can't remember what I had for breakfast. I'm in bad shape today. Now, when the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, that we need to rightly divide the word of truth. That's a very familiar verse. Everybody knows it. Our first basic division will be, obviously, the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
I know I brought you through dispensations and laid all those things out. Put that out over here. The fundamental first division. When the Bible says we got to rightly divide the truth, the word of truth will be the Old Testament and then the New Testament. And uh, that sounds easy. It sounds like it should be, oh, okay, well, here's the Old Testament. Oh, that, that, there's the New Testament. It's much more complicated than that. And getting the first two divisions right will be the key to everything else you need to divide out of your Bible. And when you mess that one up, Nothing else is going to be right. It's like if you're going to St. Louis and you're going down here, going down I-70, and then you take 13 South, um, you're never going to get to St. Louis. You took the wrong road. And if the Bible's the same way. When you start the Bible and you've got to rightly divide it, and you go down Highway 13 instead of going to where you need to divide it, you're never going to get there. And the first tragic mistake... That people make will be that they think that God operates the same way in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. I'm telling you, nothing could be farther from the truth. And if, if you don't get that first division down, you're, you're going to be like the Chiefs this afternoon. You're going to be one and done. Preach! <laughs> <laughs> See, let me tell you my method to this. If I watch the whole game, they lose. If I don't watch the game, they win. If I sit down thinking we're going to really beat these guys, we lose. I'm not telling you the truth. If I go in thinking we're going to lose tonight, we win. So I'm just trying to help them out. But unfortunately, trying to help them out will be like trying to help some of you out when it comes to the Bible. <laughs> Allow me to lay out some under, under, underlying aspects of the Old Testament and New Testament. Now, you're all Bible believers for the most part, probably, 99.999% of you. I think the vast majority of you, honestly, I do, I'm not just saying this. I think the vast majority of you really want to know the Bible. I really do. I know you're all on different levels. I marvel at you young guys and you young gals that, you know, your minds are still sharp. We've got our, host, our churches, you know, 90% under 30 and under. It's just, you, your minds are sharp. You, you have everything ahead of you. It's like giving everything that we have to you is the best thing that we can do for you. Because I believe that, the, and even in you older folks, I believe that you really, really have a good handle on the Bible and you want to know the Bible. So we're all good with that. But allow me to lay out some underlying aspects to give you a complete big picture, if you'll allow me this, of that first division in your Bible. Because that's where we're at now in John chapter 10. We're coming up to that break-off point. Now, the first difference between the Old Testament, and I've never given you this before. I, I never have. I really haven't. But the first difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and I want you to get this. The real difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, this is where it starts, will be the object of their obedience. You have to see this. It's very important. 
in the Old Testament, the object of their obedience varied from person to person based on their circumstances. You'll see that God dealt with Adam one way, told him what to believe. He dealt with Enoch another way. He dealt with Noah a completely different way. He deals with Abraham in a totally completely different way. Where Adam was told about a tree, Enoch was told about a walk, Noah was told to build a boat, Abraham was told about the stars, and then when we get to Moses, he gets a totally different aspect and he gets the law now in the Ten Commandments. And then we see it go on from there. I mean, it's endless. David got the sure mercies of David. Saul didn't. Solomon didn't. Why did David get the sure mercies of David? And yet when we study Saul's life, our first type of the Antichrist, David got the sure mercies of David. Bible clearly tells you God took his mercy from Saul. And God may have not taken his mercy from Solomon, but he took his kingdom from him. It's all different. Each one was told to trust God through a different object of obedience. Now that's the biggest fundamental difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament because in the New Testament, the object of our obedience will be fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ and His blood atonement. They didn't have that. Now I know you're told this all the time by guys who know nothing about the Bible that that's why in the Old Testament they look forward to the cross in the the New Testament we look back to the cross. Well, I may look back to the cross but I am telling you right now if you actually think that the people in the Old Testament look forward to the cross you know nothing about your Bible. My Bible tells me that Abraham looked for a city and builder whose maker was God. Not the cross. But I don't want to ruin your heresy, so just we'll leave it at that. But in the New Testament, it's all different, see, from the Old Testament. Now, that's the first fundamental difference. In the Old Testament, there's nothing fixed. And Hebrews tells you that in Hebrews chapter 1, God who at sundry times and different, he revealed himself in different ways. Because in the Old Testament, it's not fixed. It's not fixed till Christ comes down and dies on the cross and from the New Testament on, Your obedience and my obedience is now fixed on the finished work of Christ. Now, the second thing. Do you ever stop and go underneath the surface and and ask yourself or look at why God wrote the New Testament and the Old Testament? I mean, just as face value. You see, when you look at it, the Old Testament was written to confuse and destroy the Gentiles in, in general. In particular, the Catholics and the Protestants. The New Testament was written to confuse and in time to destroy the Jews and the Muslims. Now that's the reason why they were written. God's underlying reason for putting that out. Oh, I know there's a million spiritual things. But down in the basement where it started. Right next to the hot water heater. This is what he does. What God does in the New Testament, he makes a fool out of the Jew. And the Muslims, because they reject the New Testament and Christ, and they miss the church. Then God makes in the Old Testament a fool out of the Gentiles, because they, through their unbelief, reject the Old Testament and God dealing with the nation of Israel. See how it works? So, 
Along with that, he'll write the New Testament to mess up a Jew and a Muslim because the New Testament is a spiritual grace situation that is fixed on Christ. And a Jew can't get it because he rejected Christ. And that rejection in the Bible, we are told, becomes now a stumbling block for the nation of Israel, doesn't it? The Bible says over there in Romans chapter 9, verse 33, that God taking Christ and making him the fixed point of the New Testament became a rock of offense to the nation of Israel. You see, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ was the chief cornerstone of God's government. And when the Jews rejected that in Matthew chapter 12, that chief cornerstone, the rock of God, became a stumbling stone. And they tripped over it through their unbelief. So that's why he writes the New Testament. Bottom line. Now, then he writes the Old Testament. He writes the Old Testament to mess up the Gentiles because the Old Testament is set up after an order of a theocratic military dictatorship with Christ on the throne called the kingdom of heaven in the Bible. A military dictatorship with Christ on the throne and they can never get it because they can't rightly divide the word of God and the Gentiles today think the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are the same thing. So their rejection, here it comes, their rejection of the Old Testament, you're told in Daniel chapter 2, verses 44 through 43, and Psalm chapter 27, verse 2, when the Gentiles reject the Old Testament, the stumbling stone for the Jews becomes the smiting stone for the Gentiles. And the last Gentile kingdom in Daniel chapter 2 in Revelation is represented by the ten toes of Daniel which are the ten confederated nations of the Antichrist. And what happens? The stone cut without hands, the Lord Jesus Christ, smites those Gentile nations and wipes them out. Second coming. You see, there it is. The first coming of Christ, the Jews reject it, so God writes a New Testament with Christ as the fixed object of their obedience. They stumble over it. He writes the Old Testament, and the Gentiles cannot see the theocratic kingdom. They can't see the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. They certainly can't see Israel. They reject it, and it becomes the smiting stone. You won't beat the book. I, I tell you all the time, if you don't receive the word of God, like 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 says, it says, For when you receive the word of God, you receive it not as the word of men, but as in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. If you don't take that approach to the Bible, that it is the absolute word of God, Old Testament and New Testament, and see the underlying reason why he's doing what he's doing. Now, I'm not even getting into the spiritual stuff of the Old Testament. I'm not even getting into the types of the models. I'm not even getting into the great principles of the New Testament. I'm taking you to the basement. I'm taking you down and showing you the foundation of why God wrote the New Testament and wrote the Old Testament. And then he sprinkled all the other good stuff in among them, see? It's just that simple. Now, that's why... I will spend so much time laying it out for you in every detail, uh, putting it in its right place. That's how important I think it is. And I tell you over and over again, and I say this all the time, there are no experts when it comes to the Bible. 
There are no Bible scholars. There's nobody who has the handle on the Bible. No one has all the answers. If you're really honest and you got the right attitude of heart about the Bible, this will be your opinion and your attitude. The more you learn the Bible, all it will do is show you how much you don't know about the Bible. We're all students of the Word of God. We may be on different levels, but we're all students. We're helping each other. You look at me on Thursday night when I come in and answer your Bible questions like I'm something special. You hear me preach up here and give you things like this and you think it's that I'm, that I'm better than you or higher than you. No, you have no idea the things that I get from you that help me. I'll listen to one of you guys do a, a sermon and get three things out of it. I'll listen to some of you gals do something and, and, or give a testimony or I'll just, uh, you'll just, you'll, you'll, you'll ask me a question about something in the Bible and when I look at it, you'll have given me one key word I never saw it before. We're in it together, man. There's nobody who's on top here who, who has all the answers about everything about God and the Bible. There are no experts. We help each other. Now, along with that, here's another key you need to unlock the Old Testament and then the New Testament. Now, in your Old Testament, you have five wisdom books. And you look at those five wisdom books. We've talked about them. I made reference to them. But fundamentally, going back down in the basement next to the hot water heater, what do they do? I mean, I know they're filled with everything and great stuff and great principles. And you folks who have biblical principles and keep them, you probably have a bunch of them out of all those verses. I mean, Psalms is probably one of your favorite books in the Bible. Put that aside for a minute. Come on down the cellar. Over here by the water heater, as deep as you can get in this house. What do those five wisdom books do for you? Well, I'll tell you. We're told in the Bible that we understand the cost and the price that God paid for our salvation. We're told in the Bible that we need to have an understanding of the price that he paid that day on Calvary's cross. We're told in the Bible that he, he became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteous of God in him. We're told that he died on the cross for every one of you, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Yes, and I know a great aspect of the first coming of Christ. I know he came to Israel, but he also came for you and for me. And when he died on the cross, that is the fixed point for my obedience to him. So if I'm going to really understand the way I should, the suffering of Christ, then I'll need to get the wisdom book in the Bible that lays out better than any book anywhere on the planet the sufferings that he went through. That'll be the book of Job, my first wisdom book. You and I are told to get God's heart, get his heartbeat. We're told to love the Lord thy God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, and all of our soul. We are told how important that it is to get, for a Christian, to get God's heart, get out of your own stony heart, and get God's heart. Well, that would be the book of Psalms, because the book of Psalms is the wisdom book that shows you the heart of God. You're told that we're to get God's mind. I tell you all the time, the job and the goal of every one of us should be to look at the world and see it through God's eyes, not our own eyes. Well, if you're going to get God's mind, then you're going to have to get it through the book of Proverbs, that wisdom book, because that wisdom book, as I told you when we study it, that's the mind of God. 
You and I are told in a couple of places in the Bible that we're supposed to get the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And that would bring us up to our fourth wisdom book, that is the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that would be the book of Song of Solomon. We're told that we are to get the mind of the Spirit. The mind of the Spirit will show you the path of the Holy Spirit of God down through history. That will be the book of Ecclesiastes, because in the book of Ecclesiastes it tells you there's nothing new under the sun, and it gives you the path of the Holy Spirit of God right down through history. You see, these books are the key books to understanding God in the Old Testament. Then in the Old Testament, now in the New Testament. Those books will show you where he's been. They'll also show you where he's at. And they'll show him where he's going. Now having said that, that'll help you with the Old Testament. Now, there's five wisdom books in the New Testament. Solomon was the wisest man in the Old Testament. John is the wisest man in the New Testament. And there's five wisdom books in the New Testament, and they're all written by John, type of the church. The first one is where we're studying right now. That'll be the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John, we now know from when we started, it was written to show you how to be saved. The Gospel of John is a picture of understanding our salvation. Then you have the next book, which is the wisdom book of 1 John, and that's the book that tells you about your walk and your fellowship. But we would be amiss, according to Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, if we did not understand, as Christians, God's dealing with the nation of Israel. So the next two books, the third one would be 2 John, and in 2 John, he deals with the elect lady, the nation of Israel. The fourth one is 3 John, and there we see two men, a wise man and a foolish man, just like in the book of Proverbs, just like in Matthew chapter 25. And now I see my relationship to the Jew in the New Testament when I anchor that into Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. The fifth wisdom book will be the book of Revelation, also written by John. And this will be a layout of everything that God is doing in the church age. God will show you and me every aspect of the church age because he knows how important history in the Bible is. So he breaks it down into seven periods of church history so we couldn't miss it. And in that, he gives us the complete picture. In Revelation chapter 1 is the introduction. Revelation chapter 2 and 3 is the church age. Revelation chapter 4 is the rapture. Revelation chapter 5 through 18 is the tribulation. Revelation chapter 19 is the second coming. Revelation chapter 20 is the millennium. Revelation chapter 21 and 22 is eternity. What more do you need? You see the importance of these books when you see them as the wisdom books in the Old Testament and the wisdom book of the New Testament. The book of Revelation is like going to the Chiefs game this evening and buying a program. It'll give you the all the players, it'll give you their stats, and it'll give you a view, overall view of how the game is going to go and who's going to play. That's what Revelation does. It shows you the players in history. It shows you the, the, the devil, how he works in this great game of life. It shows you everything that you need to know 
that you can get the stats and know where you're at in life and where God is at. Now, along with that, <laughs> we haven't fun yet, along with that, I've given you the five stages of the development of the nation of Israel. You have the formulation, you have the calling out, you have the establishment, you have the demise, then you have the captivity, which leads you to the first coming of Christ. But now you have five stages of the development of the church. One from the Old Testament that shows you and leads you to the first coming of Christ, one in the church age that leads you to the second coming of Christ. You have a formulation, that'll be the apostles in the Gospels, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, they're the foundation. Then you have the calling out, that'll be Acts chapter 8 through 19. Then you have the establishment, that'll be Acts chapter 20, up to about 1880, our time. And then you have the demise, which starts about 1888, up to 1970s in the 80s. And then now we have the captivity, which comes in sometime after that, and we're living in it now, 2021 and 22, which is going to lead us, our captivity, to the second coming of Christ. See how it works? Now what I'm about to give you, along with this, are the nine parallels understanding the Old Testament and the New Testament. I've given you everything to show you the big picture. We're down in the basement, so we might as well, before we come up into the sunlight, we might as well take a look at this one. Nine parallels of the first coming of Christ to Israel and the second coming of Christ to the church. The first one. When Christ came the first time, Israel was held captive. When Christ comes the second time, the church is held captive. And they're both without the Word of God. Second one. When Christ came the first time, Rome was in power. When Christ comes the second time, Rome will be in power. The third one. Christ came the first time. The Jews are in the homeland. They go in in Esther, Nehemiah, and Ezra. We saw it a couple of weeks ago. When Christ comes a second time, the Jew again will be in the homeland. This time they go back in 1948. And you're told in your Bible that the Jew goes back two times. The fourth one. Christ came the first time, the Jews are in apostasy. Christ comes the second time, the church is in apostasy. The fifth one. Christ came the first time, John the Baptist was the forerunner. Christ comes the second time, Elijah will be the forerunner, and in Matthew chapter 17, verse 2, it shows you the connection between John the Baptist and Elijah and why Elijah comes in the spirit of John the Baptist. The sixth one. When Christ came the first time, there's one universal language. It's Greek. When Christ comes the second time, there's one universal language. It's English. The seventh one. 
When Christ came the first time, there's a military dictatorship in power. When Christ comes the second time, there's a military dictatorship in power. The eighth one. When Christ came the first time at the first coming of Christ, you'll notice in Matthew chapter 2, he comes privately to his family first in a manger. And then when he starts his public ministry, he reveals himself to the world. The second time he comes, he'll reveal himself to his family first, the rapture of the church, you and me. And at a time later, he comes at the second coming and the whole world sees him. The ninth one. At the first coming of Christ, there's a world taxed put on all the people. And right now, at the second coming, Biden and the boys are considering putting on a world tax. Some things never change. Now, you see, you have it all now. Everything that I've got on it. Everything you need to make that Bible come alive for you. Understanding the big picture. Going underneath the surface. Never accepting anything in the Bible at face value, even though face value may have some tremendous spiritual impact in your life. Just know that it's deeper than that. You've got to learn to go down deep. You've got to learn to go underneath the surface. You've got to learn to see and understand the big picture behind why God wrote what he wrote. Why he wrote the Old Testament. Why he wrote the New Testament. Why he called out a nation in the Old Testament and he calls out a spiritual church in the New Testament. Why? Did God just decide someday, I don't know, this is what I'm going to do? No, he has a plan. And God's people get so surface with it all, they never see and understand what God is doing in the Old Testament or the New Testament. And very frankly, that's why they don't ever want to get involved in anything because they don't know what he's doing. They think he's a great God. They thank God that he saved them. But as far as understanding really what it means for us to give our life to God and where we fit into this scheme of what God is doing, have no clue. Now in closing out this great chapter, he leaves us with all this material, but yet in spite of that, from a practical, personal application to myself, and I would never try to speak for you, one of the greatest things that will really show me what a true conversion experience really is. And when it comes down to the good work that he did for his father, he says to them, this is the last thing he says, verse 37 and 38. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though you believe not me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Now, folks, there it is. I couldn't have thought of a better way to clear this chapter out after all that he said and all that we've seen. The division, the opposition, everything that we've experienced 
all through this chapter. They have denied him. But what they could not deny was the works that he did. It's the difference to me between a Laodicean Christianity and a biblical-based Philadelphian Christianity. I want to say something to you, and I want you to let it sink in for a moment. Real biblical Christianity will never be by the example of our power. Real biblical Christianity will never be by the example of our power. But real biblical Christianity, rather, will be by the power of our example. Now you let that sink in for a moment. It isn't about what we claim we know. It isn't about what title or status we hold. It isn't about what we think about who we are. The real, the real Christianity is about the power of the example of what God is doing in our lives. I've told you many, many times, and you see it here, that real witnessing is not about telling somebody what God will do for them. People are going to deny what you say. People will deny everything when you try to witness to them. They will deny what you say. Unfortunately, many times they deny what we say because our lives do match up to what we're saying. But in spite of that, people may deny what you say, but they cannot deny the power of a changed life and the power of your example. As I've said all through this chapter, you don't tell people what God will do for them. You allow them to see your life. You allow them to see your family. You allow them to see your ministry. And you allow them to see what he does for you, the works of God through your life. That's the only proof you have. He told them, you can deny me and that's okay. But you can't deny what God is doing in my life. People will deny what you say. And we live in a Christianity today where nobody wants to believe what God says anyhow. The only witness we have is the power of our example of what God is doing in our lives. We live in a world that is broken. We live in a system that is so fouled up and messed up and busted that it's unrepairable. We have broken marriages. We have broken families. We have broken individuals. We have people who are struggling in a world looking for answers that has no answers. And the only one who has the answers is every one of us if you're saved this morning and you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior. That that enough is not going to get it done. Just getting saved and claiming you're a Christian won't cut it. Not in the world we live in today. Because everybody's saved. And they look at you and me and say, well, I'm a Christian, I love God. And they see other Christians that say they love God doing the same thing the world does. It's just like the scribes and the Pharisees versus Jesus. 
They didn't like him. <coughs> they wanted nothing to do with him. They called him a liar. They called him a thief. But they could not deny the power of God of his example. Christianity today is as empty as a broken 55-gallon drum. It's lost the power of its example. All through here is the example of their power. I mean, the scribes and the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees, they had the power and they lorded over the people. They ruled the people. <coughs> they were cruel to the people. Their example was their power. Jesus had the power of his example. Because God's people have lost the power of any example of God working in them. We all know there's no work for salvation. You can't work your way to heaven. There ain't no good works that can cut it with God. There's nothing that you could do that could ever earn or merit salvation with God. But salvation is God's work in your life. You don't work to get saved, but you need to work after you get saved. Because when he began a good work, 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 work in you, he wants to perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. You see, salvation isn't about me working my way to heaven, but after I get saved, it's about me recognizing the work that God started in me to finish for him the work of the Father that he never finished. And yet I think that's one of the most simplest concepts to understand, but to the life of me, I just don't understand why God's people can't get that. This will be the powerful testimony that Christ had. This will be the powerful testimony that the religious leaders didn't have. And they hated him for it. Simply because it was, he was, the, it was the one thing that they could not deny. They could rumor about him. They could lie about him. They could get little meetings together and castigate him. They could call him names to his face, a blasphemer, a devil, all the things to his face. He still raised the dead, gave eyesight to the blind, and could still the waters of a roaring sea. It wasn't the example of his power. It was the power of his example. There's no difference from the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. I've, I've showed you that. Today it's all talk. Like Israel, it's a form of godliness. The proof of our salvation is your work for, for the Father. Jesus himself said, it's the only thing that I have that's credible. You don't believe what I say. You want to stone me. You want to kill me. My God, I've divided the whole nation. The only thing that I have to my credit that you cannot deny that proves who I say I am what God's doing in my life. Many of God's people to go to church on Sunday, but there's no power in their life on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. There are people who never 
you know, they just, they just can't get to the point where they ever realize what God has really done for them. You know, and this is true all across the, all across the country in America, probably around the world too. I told you when the first pandemic hit about two years ago, and everybody had to scatter, everybody had to hunker down, and it cost everybody to do this, and we had to, remember, we went into those stupid groups of 10 people each, and we fudged on and put 20, but who cares? Uh, and we, we, you know, we had to do all those things that everybody said we had to do, wore masks, we had to put, Danny was here with a six-foot stick, making sure, not, wasn't beating you with it, he was making sure the seats <laughs> were six feet apart, and all this junk we had to do, and all that stuff. And I told you then, that this was going to be a real test for God's people. And in this church and churches across this city and across this country, I told you that there were people that were good people. But when you stay out of church for a year, you stay out of church because you're afraid of the pandemic or your church, you stay out for six months, four months, three months, five months, a year, two years, you never go back. And I told you there would be people that would not come back. Not because they're bad people. They won't come back because, in reality, the truth, this church meant nothing to them to begin with. Some of you, you get sick for a week and you're seeing that you're going to die because you can't come to church. Some of you, when we were separated from each other, you had anxiety over the whole fact that it was because of the fact because you knew what meeting together and opening up the Word of God and building each other and helping each other meant. But some of God's people have meant nothing. So nothing lost, nothing gained. You're out for a week, out for a year, out for six months, and you never come back. Why? Because it meant nothing to you to begin with. This is Christianity today. Yet the Bible says that Christ not only loved the church, he gave himself for it. Philippians chapter 3 verse 10 says that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable unto his death. That I may know him. There's your salvation. Not the day you met Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior. Not the day it was supposed to change your life forever. That was the day that you come out of the darkness into the light. That was the day that uh, no more will the world have anything to do with you. That was the day that God's hand, that big knife, Colossians chapter 2, came down and not only divided your soul from your flesh, but it divided you from the world. that I may know him, power of his resurrection. That's the power of the example of Jesus Christ. Nobody could explain how he came out of the tomb. Why, the Romans, they wanted to pay the guards to say that they came and stole his body. They, the Protestants come up with every kind of thing, the swoon theory. Well, he really didn't die when he put him in that cool cave. He just woke up and went home. You see, he was dead. You put him in that tomb. And on the third day, he came back from the dead. Amen. Nobody can explain that. That is the power of his example. That's the same power that your life and my life should be. My life should be as unexplainable 
as him coming out of that tomb. Your life shall be as unexplainable as him coming out of that tomb. To this day, 2,000 plus years later, there's people still deny that he came out of that tomb. There's people that still say the swoon theory or this theory or that theory. Or there's people that still say, well, the Roman soldiers came and stole him or his followers stole him. But the truth of the matter is, he came out of that tomb. And whether you want to believe it or not, the power of his example has existed for 2,000 years and the millions and millions and millions of souls that have been saved because the object of my obedience is him on that cross in that tomb and resurrected. His resurrection changed the world. Your resurrection from the life of sin should change the world. It's just that simple. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Ah, and the fellowship of his suffering. Understanding the price that he paid will help you understand the price that we need to pay. And then it says, being made conformable unto his death. I want you to note, this one doesn't say conformable unto him, Christ, but unto his death. The only way you have the work of God in your life is to be dead to the world but alive to Christ through a resurrection of your soul. The day you trusted Christ, you were baptized into Jesus' death. The day you trusted Christ as your own personal Savior, you were dead in trespasses of sin, but you arose alive in Christ. As the Bible says, you're dead and your life is hid in Christ, Colossians 3, 3. And I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it closes out this great chapter with deals with him as Israel's Messiah by giving us the great example of how to be an effective witness for Christ through the power of our example, based on the power of his example. Our work of God in our lives through a changed life that people can't, they can deny who we, what we say, but they'll never be able to deny what God does in your life. It doesn't matter what they thought of him. Man said, oh, I know, I was dead and now I'm alive. Blind man says, I don't know. All I know is I couldn't see and now I'm seen. The other guy says, you know, I don't know. I was white as snow with a leprosy. He made me clean. You can never deny the miracles of God. The problem with God's people don't have any in their lives. The ministry of God in his life as the son of God and it divided Israel. But through that division, the Bible says God used it to show the people what was real and what was not real. And I love the last verse in that chapter. Yeah, I think it says it all. John chapter 10, verse 42. After everything that was done, everything that was said, they couldn't get past the miracles that God had done in his life, the work, and it says, and many believed on him there. You see, the world can't stop him, and the world can't stop us. We think it can. We get fearful because we think it can. We get afraid of what's out there. 
the roaring lions in the dark. But the truth of the matter is, greater is he that's in you that's in the world. And the truth of the matter is, he, he, nothing can stop us. Because it's not us, but it's the power of God, the power of an example of a changed life. And you and I, as a son of God, with the works of God, will be what God will use to bring many to Christ. But as John chapter 10 shows us, he must first divide. He has to divide truth from leaven. He has to divide truth from the world. And he has to divide truth from religion. And then through the power of the example that we have, God will do the work that people will see. And they'll want what we have because they live in a world without any answers. They live in a world with rejection, heartache, depression, all the things that just destroy people's lives today simply because all they need is a miracle. And when they can't get, God can't get them a miracle to come down from heaven, you know, somebody says, well, well do you believe in miracles? Yeah, I do believe in miracles. I believe every one of us ought to be the miracle to an unsaved person. Yes, I do. There you have it, John chapter 10. Next week, John chapter 11, I am telling you right now, we, I don't even know where to start with this one. It is probably one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. There'll be so much in this one, we don't know what we're going to do with it. Well, don't forget, sign up for the ladies' night.